Hello, I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm here to encourage you to subscribe to The Spectator's American edition. If you visit spectator.us forward slash subscribe, you can get our print and digital edition for just $7.99 a month. This means you get unlimited access to our amazing website and we'll send you a beautiful 80-page monthly magazine. You'll also have access to our mobile app. Subscribe now at spectator.us forward slash subscribe. You won't regret it. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics? The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by Laura Dodsworth, who is the author of A State of Fear, How the UK Government Weaponized Fear During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Now, Laura, your, most of your research has been on Britain and the British government and its handling of the COVID pandemic. But you've written this article for Spectator World, the US edition of The Spectator, which uh, looks at how in America and indeed all over the world, vaccine persuasion or vaccine encouragement is teetering into vaccine coercion and emotional manipulation. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've discovered? Yeah, sure. I mean, the thing is, it's been quite interesting to watch because we've never done anything like this before for a previous vaccine or a previous medical intervention. I think some people will say the ends justify the means, and that, that can be a whole whole thing we can talk about, but we haven't used these means before. And there were particular things I saw that really alerted my radar. And I wondered what this means. I decided to collect some examples and talk to public health professionals about their view of these brand new persuasions, incentives, coercions to encourage vaccine take-up. So some of the really standout ones for me, the ones that really got my radar tingling, were jabs for joints in Washington. So giving people free marijuana joints in exchange for vaccination, which which sounds like it could be a great incentive for Mm. some people. So you can see how the the means would take you to the ends, but it is using a drug to persuade people to have a medical intervention. And indeed quite a dangerous, I mean, it is legal in a lot of places in America, but quite a dangerous drug. It is legal in some places, but considered an illegal drug in others. So it it draws the attention, doesn't it? If the vaccine doesn't make you mentally ill, the uh, cannabis will. It might do. I don't know. I'm staying away away from that. But uh, Krispy Kreme donuts every day for a year for the vaccinated. I mean, on one hand, I don't don't really care if people eat donuts every day for a year. But on the other hand, considering that obesity is a very strong comorbidity with COVID, there's there's an incongruence to that as well. Yes. And And, and eating one donut a day isn't going to make you fat and give you COVID. It's just there is this incongruence to encouraging a fast food, which makes people perhaps less healthy and but it's also might treating, make them more vulnerable to disease. It's it's treating grown-ups like children, isn't it? It's it's offering them candy, sweet rewards, 
foregoing to do this thing that is seen as a pub, a, an important public health thing to do. And indeed, in Canada, they did offer children. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up, right? Exactly. Treating adults like children in Canada. Because when I think about what just happened in Ontario and Canada, I just can't get the image of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang's child catcher <laughs> out of my head. You edited this out of my article. But uh, probably wise, <laughs> sometimes less is more. But in Ontario, they're letting 12-year-olds have the vaccine without parental consent. I mean, there are precedents for that with other types of medical intervention like STD testing, contraceptives. I don't know if that's happened before with other vaccines, but Mm. there's this idea of gillet competency at a certain age, a child might be able to decide for themselves. But they're letting children at the age of 12 have the vaccine without parental consent and get an ice cream. Yes. And What struck me about this is having two teenage boys, you know, for years you teach children not to take sweets from strangers. Mm. And I'm I'm not equating a public health official or a nurse with the child catcher, but there's just this feeling about it, which is a bit... It's just creepy. It's it's just a bit weird. Yes. I mean, I... I feel very uncomfortable at the idea of children being lured for a sweet treat to have a vaccination without their parents yes. having to consent. We should spell out that you are not, as you say in the piece, you are, and it's sort of pathetic that you have to spell this out, but you do. You have to spell out that you are not anti-vax, you are not anti-COVID vaccination. It's so tiresome, it's ridiculous. I shouldn't have to state my, public, uh, my, my medical history publicly at all, but I've had every vaccination, yeah. and so have my children. But you do. I'm not. I'm, I must not this. be characterised as anti-vax. Yeah. I'm not anti-vax mm. at all. But I am intrigued, interested, and slightly concerned by the panoply of persuasions being used to encourage the COVID nineteen vaccine. Another one that really got my attention was seeing the words "vaccine saves" projected onto Christ the Redeemer in Rio. Yes. Now fair enough to say that the vaccine can save lives but that's a very interesting intersection of the old religion with what is beginning to feel like a new religion yes previously we'd have said or christians would have said that faith saves belief saves jesus saves yes and now it's vaccine saves so i don't know if it would be fair to call that coercive that's not what i mean it just got my attention i thought what are we doing here what kind of messages are we putting out to encourage vaccine uptake now i i spoke to a very keen vaccine advocate doctor and an associate professor of epidemiology dr stefan barrow who's based in the states he's at john hopkins about a number of these tactics and about that one he did feel it was coercive actually because he said that if you are devoutly religious Mm. you may feel that your faith leaders are providing an extra compulsion Mm. to have the vaccine and and that wouldn't normally sit within what religious leaders tell you I, i don't know i think that's maybe a little bit tenuous it is a strange new religion, isn't it? Because I suppose the, the religion is about not dying in theory, whereas religion, and I know this is you're, you're doing some work on this now, religion is about beyond what happens beyond death. I mean, salvation is not about whether you are saved from death or not, isn't it, in, in religion? Whereas the, the safetyist religion that's emerging around COVID is very much yeah do you know the um tremendous vicars that run the irreverend podcast no i don't oh so it's it's a really good podcast very interesting they had me on recently we were talking about that i kind of turned the tables and i wanted to ask them about it because last easter if you rewind it is interesting that churches shut their doors at easter easter is when christians celebrate 
the resurrection and mm. it is about eternal life and what saves you and I'm not Christian so I'm having to preface this much as I'm not anti-vax and I'm not Christian <laughs> but there was something I found a bit disappointing about church doors being shut and I get it in a pandemic I do but yes. I did this photography project I went to interview a priest and I sat with him you know that weekend I think it was actually Good Friday itself you know we sit in his massive Catholic church which is empty the doors are locked and he said that morning there had been a woman kneeling on the steps praying the steps of the church yes you know not able to get in so that i think there is this strange dichotomy but there are different people in the church are going to feel differently about this the the irreverent guys are great you might want to think about having them on sometime because their feeling is that at a time when the church could have provided more spiritual sustenance and again be talking about what comes beyond death Mm. it's all it's been very much about preserving well, and that's and it goes against what how the Christian churches grew in in the Middle Ages because they were the one pe- group of people that were willing to touch the sick during plagues and so on, and so they actually a lot of them would develop, develop immunity because of this. So Jesus touched a leper. So and exactly, I, I yeah. do wonder what's going to happen with vaccine passports. You know, if they roll if they roll out, although the select committee has said there's no justification or scientific basis for them, if they roll out, yeah, what will the church do? Well, I mean, would you? I I don't think the churches should i don't know if they will but i think it would be very very odd if the churches demand vaccine identification to enter uh, that would be quite an extraordinary turnaround yeah but let's go go back to the manipulation thing because as you say in this excellent piece the point is it might not give us the happy ending that we want because it undermines long-term trust yeah. in medical solutions Absolutely. Okay, so there's a bigger picture here that I think has been running through the whole epidemic management. One of my spy heroes was Dr. Gavin Morgan. He's an educational psychologist. I interviewed him for my book, A State of Fear. Now, he was one of the few people I gather at the beginning who said, if we lock down, how are we going to come out? If we close schools down, how will we reopen them? The easy thing is shutting a school down or shutting society down. Reopening is much harder, mm. especially when the messaging has been heavily fear-based how do you bring people back down from fear and reopen so that's a whole other conversation and this is this is what my book's about but it's I think there's a similar thing with the vaccine campaign everybody wants to race to the finish line just get the pandemic over just get back to normal but I think there's a sense after all this time people will do anything to get back to normal but it's never been normal to dangle all of these persuasions in front of people to get them vaccinated and I do wish that we'd pause and have a think about the nature of these persuasions. Now, there isn't any public health documentation that makes it very clear what sort of incentive is and is not acceptable with a vaccine. But Dr. Stefan Burrell, one of the interviewees for this piece in Spectator World, did point me towards um, a health and human services document which states that payments for participation presents an undue influence, thus interfering with the potential subject's ability to give informed consent. And that was very much the view of other professionals I've spoken to in the UK as well, including Dr Jackie Castle, who's a very keen vaccine proponent, public health specialist. Your informed consent for a medical intervention should be based on the risks and the benefits of the intervention itself. Mm. There shouldn't be a prize at the end in order to have it. So while it might encourage some people to get towards the finish line, 
There's a risk it could also damage informed consent, which is why people are having the medical intervention, as well as trust in this particular vaccine campaign and also future public health programmes. Well, and we're particularly, we're getting to the, the most difficult as far as the government trying to do it phase of the vaccine rollout, which is as we get to younger age groups in America and in Britain. And it seems one uh, method of persuasion that's going to be talked about, and it, it may, this may be the right thing to do, I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily the wrong thing to do, but it's to talk about long COVID, because for young people, they don't really have a lot to fear from COVID. So the only way you're going to persuade them to take up the vaccine for a lot of them, although take up seems to be pretty high so far, is to talk about the possible dangers of long COVID. Is that something you're worried about? I haven't really heard too much about it, and I also haven't looked into long COVID too much. I think there are very different medical views about that. I think there is a sense that it's being used in order to stimulate fears, Mm. to encourage compliance with either restrictions or vaccine take-up. But I haven't looked into the real risk of COVID, long COVID, and I, I don't feel well placed to comment on it. I just think that medical interventions should be presented purely in terms of medical risk and benefit. And it has to be honest and it has to be fair because every intervention comes with a health risk, comes with adverse effects, even in very, very rare cases, deaths. And you have to be honest about the risk benefit calculus. We have never used children as a shield for the elderly in a vaccination campaign. The vaccine must serve the child Mm. and not everyone else. So I think that's, that's one concern. I mean, there was a tweet last week, I don't know if you saw it, from Rosie Millard, who's the director of BBC's Children in Need. Yes. And I might not remember exactly word for word, but it was something like, should parents have a say in vaccinating their children? Yeah. I I can't really imagine us having... I can't imagine a public figure saying something like that pre-pandemic. Yes. The idea that parents should or shouldn't have a say in vaccinating their children. Yes. If not the parent, then who? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, I suppose the child, right? And as you said, there there are instances where children can have informed consent, right? I mean, you talked about uh, contraception things. That society's taken a view that children can make that decision without their parents' consent, for right, for better or worse. Yeah, but this isn't this. I, I, it's thorny. I I can't pretend I've got the, all the answers on this, but I do have concerns. There was a another educationist. From one of the National Head Teacher Associations, not the National Head Teacher Association, though, because I think there is one called that, a different one, who was reported as saying in the Telegraph that we could rely on peer pressure in schools to encourage teenagers in high schools to have the vaccine. And what worries me about that is, as a mother of two teenage boys, you know, one week they get an assembly on not succumbing to peer pressure and taking drugs. Mm. And then the next week, what, there'd be an attitude that it's okay to leverage peer pressure to get them to have a vaccine. Mm. The point is that we should be teaching young people not to give in to peer pressure at all under any circumstances. They have to learn to think critically and independently and to resist peer pressure. Dr Jackie Castle, this UK health professional I was talking to, is very worried about the use of peer pressure in school. She thinks it's going to be damaging long-term to trust. And it's completely at odds with how doctors would normally sell the idea of a vaccine to you. Mm. They wouldn't use peer norms. They wouldn't use social conformity at all. And this is where you see the influence of behavioural psychology into this vaccine drive, like we've seen in other aspects of the epidemic. Well, it's something that governments have increasingly become fond of, particularly the British government is, is nudge theory. And what's quite interesting now is how governments seem to coordinate 
messaging internationally. And so there are tools, there are marketing, advertising techniques for encouraging people to do things that they don't want to do. And this very much involves nudge theory. That, from what you're saying, quickly can border on um, emotional manipulation. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And and fear is the steam in the emotion engine. I don't know how much governments are and aren't coordinating, but you do see a consistency of message. I would love to get to the bottom of, of how that all works. It's perhaps another another project for another time. But Cass Sunstein, who is originally a lawyer and is a celebrated behavioural economist, heads up the World Health Organization's behavioural psychology team for the mm. epidemic. And he's recommended tackling the three C's. So that's convenience, confidence, and complacency. And you can see how the different incentives so far work for that. So for convenience, what you want is for vaccination centres to be open nice long hours that suit everybody, Um, for there to be lots of them in different places. Uber and Lyft were offering free cab rides in the States to Mm. take people to vaccination. So that's convenience. It would be hard to argue with that. It's great to make it convenient for people. Where it gets a bit more thorny is with confidence and complacency. So the problem with complacency is it means tackling people's sense of risk. And the fact is that some people are less at risk. That's the young people. Mm. Um, They are less at risk from COVID, from severe illness from COVID and from death. So when you see incentives that particularly target them, it might be a bit out of kilter with their risk. So on one hand, you've got donuts, you've got free beer, you've even got lap dances in Las Vegas. <laughs> I kid you not, you can get a free lap dance. I can't believe we every... left that one out at the beginning. That's a, that's a big one. Yeah. I know, you rushed me on to religion, or perhaps that was me. I mean, I had from, <laughs> from lap dances to Christ's Redeemer. So yeah, in Las Vegas at Larry Flint's Hustle Club, you can get a free lap dance every day for a year if you're vaccinated. Yes. Uh, but you know, I mustn't forget my original point, but I'm going to sidetrack here. You can sort of see a reason for it. That kind of entertainment venue, which relies on proximity between customer and hostess. They don't want people thinking that another human being could kill them. Yeah. Yeah. So so I get it. But there is something a bit weird and certainly unprecedented about lap dances for vaccinations. Yes. Anyway, so one of the more concerning tactics to encourage young people to have the vaccine is, say, college scholarships. Now, they're really expensive, aren't they, in the States? But entering a raffle for a college scholarship mm. for an 18-year-old is... That's a serious draw, isn't it? That's a serious prize. That is a big carrot. Yes. But I think especially with myocarditis link that's come out of the Israeli data and... It's quite widely known about now. This is an increased risk of myocarditis, which is a heart condition from the first Pfizer jab or possibly the second Pfizer jab. No, yeah. it's too, having two close Pfizer jabs in succession, I think, increases your risk. According yeah. According to this one. This yeah, if you have two, but I think even one also increases the risk. So an 18-year-old lad, not really at great risk from COVID, does have an increased risk from myocarditis if he has the Pfizer jab. Should he really be incentivized with something as valuable as a college education mm. it's a question and it's it's something that Stefan Burrell said to me scared him yes it, it scared him you know he he's operated programs where they give $20 to homeless people to have the COVID vaccination he sees that as an acceptable incentive because those people are very much more at risk mm. they have other health conditions and it's not 
it's not a college education. It's $20, but it's enough to nudge them, yes. nudge them towards that finish line. A college education is a big, is a big deal. And of course, there have been cash raffles too. Yes. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about with, with this level of, and it's very obvious, emotional manipulation that, that has gone on since the pandemic started. And that's to do with, you know, um, using fear, using disgust to make people wash their hands. That was another uh, technique that governments uh, used a lot. It does have psychological repercussions, um, and it could also, there could be a connection, it's not very well established, but there's been some speculation about this, and I'd be interested to know whether you think there is one, between the rise in violent crime uh, and the end of the lockdown. It could be down to the fact that uh, people have just not not been socialising enough, Mm. uh, that the police are are not as uh, across um, the system, as it were. But in America, you've seen, I saw a statistic today, Portland, uh, the murder rate is up 800%, uh, which is extraordinary. It's up about 30, 40% in other major American cities. Do you think this could be connected to the fact that we have, that governments have scared their populations witless for over a year? Mm, well, I'm speaking in a non-professional psychologist uh, capacity, but it makes complete sense. People have been bottled up. You know, yeah. all the normal human social behaviour has been bottled up. It's not nat- natural to stay indoors and not go to sports and not see people, and not socialise. There's frustration. There's fear. Yeah. There's fear in so many ways. Fears of fears of a virus, fear of death, fear for the economy, jobs, culture. Fear of other people. Fear of other people. What happens to that? What happens to that when it's been bottled up and the hot summer starts? I'd have thought it. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, um, certainly here in the UK, it's a question that the government are putting to the Spy B advisors. That's the scientific scientific pandemic influenza group on behaviour, mm. and asking um, their specialists in crowd control and violence and police. Well, I if, think police officers are, are talking here, and we're here in London. They are talking about a, a summer of summer of rage, possibly, and yeah. they're very concerned about what will happen. Actually, what my um one of my boys' schools, there've been a lot more fights since yeah. they went back to school in March. A lot of yeah. fights, breaking a lot of fisticuffs, and that my son's teacher told me that it's like the boys went a bit feral after lockdown. No, and this is not because their parents have been remiss or because they're bad kids or anything, yes. but because I think there was this enormous pressure about going back into society, yes. into a social setting. And it's it's like pressure's been building up, you know, like shaking a bottle and then the lid's been released. Mm. And the most appropriate social behaviour didn't necessarily come out. But Well, I mean, yeah, I guess we can't necessarily blame government messaging on that, but it may well be a factor. I would like to end by asking, you know, the headline of your piece is Beware the Happy Ending. I mean, let's say the vaccine rollout continues to be uh, successful and the number of deaths continues to go down and that we eventually get this pandemic under control what do you think the negative consequences will be there then of the emotional manipulation of the almost coercion that you're talking about the main thing is when you have any medical intervention it must be based on a clear understanding of the risk and the benefit of the intervention you Mm. should not be having any intervention including a vaccine because there's a prize at the end or because you're told there will be no normality unless you do or that there's a threat There was a quite extraordinary NHS document published in December 2020 entitled Optimising Vaccination Rollout, Do's and Don'ts for All Messaging, Documents and Communications in the Widest Sense. It's since been unpublished. 
uh, I don't know why it's been withdrawn, but I'm going to take a guess that there would have been an outcry Mm. among doctors and nurses about it. It said things like, normality can only return for you and others with your vaccination. It's true that reaching herd immunity through vaccination and people who've caught and recovered from COVID is what's going to get us back to normality. Yes. But that's emotional manipulation. It could simply be the risk of the disease is this, the tiny risk of the vaccine is this, and the benefit of it is this, and now will you have it, please? Mm. Um, And treat people like adults, give them the fats. When I spoke to a doctor about that document here in the UK, she said she could not imagine a doctor or nurse ever being able to use the words that were provided in that document. There were so many examples of exact phrases that should be used. And it exposes the kind of divisions, even fault lines, that you get between the different disciplines. This is where behavioural psychology doesn't quite understand how doctors and nurses do their jobs. They do not use peer norms and social conformity and emotional manipulation to sell a vaccine. I think the danger in all of these tactics is that later on, when you see in the media about adverse effects like myocarditis, how is a generation of young people going to feel if they were incentivized to have a drug that ultimately might have created a net cost for their age bracket? For instance, I don't know if it will work out like that or not. We should only be presenting medical interventions on the benefit they present to that particular category of people. And we should be clearer about what our priorities are. We shouldn't race to a finish line without thinking about what the end point we really want to end up at is. And it should be trusting governments and trusting public health messaging. When I see a mixture of campaigns like jabs for joints or in the UK recently, we had our first big incentivised campaign, which was free football tickets Mm. for people at Charlton Athletic for the first thousand people that got vaccinated got a free football ticket that makes me feel a bit concerned about about where we're heading and what's going to happen to long-term trust the covid vaccine isn't necessarily a sprint either it's a marathon if people need yearly boosters yes and therefore if you undermine trust early on which is what we could be doing could have very very fatal consequences and something we've talked about on this podcast before is how if you look at the last decade Trust in politics has gone down. Trust in the financial system has decreased. Trust now in medical authority, in the medical authorities, has gone down. So you have a kind of collapse in trust that could have very, very serious and very, very dangerous consequences. Uh, well, I'm I'm worried about it, but it's it's also part of a general trend, I think, in public health to infantilise people a little bit. Mm. I mean, I think people can be trusted with the facts and the information and act like responsible adults and just make decisions for themselves based on facts. And I I don't know why we should move away from that as a default position. Not everyone's going to feel the same. Somebody in this office on the way and told me they think that the range of incentives is brilliant because it will help us get to the finish line more quickly. We just need to be aware that we've crossed a Rubicon and we need to be aware of what our priorities are when we do that. Laura, I think we'll end it there. But thank you very much for coming in and please join us again soon. I'd love to. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.